in this time of COVID-19, apart from staying healthy, one of my biggest concerns has been, what if an appliance I need decides after 10 years of near constant use to suddenly fail on me? In normal times, I'd call a repair person, then wait until he or she could show up to fix my appliance. But now, I don't want extra people in my house. So I'll look it up on Google, right? I'll do it myself. So my dishwasher wasn't draining. Turns out there's this filter on the kitchen sink, not the dishwasher, that when it gets clogged, keeps the dishwasher from draining properly. A few minutes on Google, a pair of needle nose pliers, I'm good. Then just last week, my washing machine wasn't draining. So I got to thinking, what if there's a filter on it? And what if, like the dishwasher, it got gunked up? Sure enough, there's a trap door in the front of the washer that, if you open it up, not only does it release all the water in the drum, but it also exposes the filter that you need to clean periodically. No need for a repair person. But what if there was some kind of special screw on that trap door so that the only way I could fix it, even if I knew what the fix should be, was to schedule an appointment with the technician who would use a proprietary screwdriver, open the trap door, drain the water and filter, and then charge me a hundred bucks or so. What if the right to repair something that you own was denied simply because a manufacturer decided it could do that? In a moment, I'll talk with someone who is leading the right to repair movement in the United States and discuss how current laws impact those who hack digital devices. As Stuart Brand said back in 1984, information wants to be free. So should analyzing a device's firmware for security flaws be considered illegal? Or should our right to repair our own devices extend into the digital world? Welcome to The Hacker Mind, an original podcast from For All Secure. I'm Robert Vimosi, and in this episode, I'm talking about our right to repair, how some high-tech companies might want to limit that right, and how there's a group of information security professionals who are volunteering their free time to fight for those rights in local legislation. So before we get into the topic, I should probably disclose up front that my guest, Paul Roberts, and I go way back, almost two decades. Back when Paul was writing about InfoSec stories for IDG, I was doing the same over at ZDNet. So he was like my competition. We've long since left those jobs and over the years have formed a good friendship. And sometimes, as we did back in the beginning, we see a trend early on and then we write about it. For example, at the time I was writing my book on IoT security, When Gadgets Betray Us, Paul was off creating The Security Ledger, a news site dedicated to IoT security, a site where he remains editor-in-chief today and maintains his own great InfoSec podcast, also called Security Ledger. Recently, Paul has been quietly working on something new. He's created an organization of InfoSec volunteers to help advance the cause known as the right to repair. This might seem like a lot of effort for something that's so niche. It's not, actually. Play it out across a few decades and you start to see the type of trouble we're in if we don't start educating our legislators now and if current trends are allowed to continue. The issues that surround right to repair are, are, are just huge and, and they mean they have tremendous importance to all of us and kind of the world that we're going to be inhabiting 
10 or 20 or 30 years hence. And, and the core issue is really, are we the owners of our things or are we merely tenants? Um, Richard Forno, in his testimony in Maryland, um, which Stanford republished on their blog, called it, you know, kind of the the company town business model that that many of these device makers are adopting, where we're going to lock you into this. The company towns used to lock in the employees owning their home and the store they bought stuff in. You know, we're going to lock you into these ecosystems where we dictate to you how you use a device um, and also kind of extract, you know, money and information from you or both over, over the life of this, of this product, you know, increase the cost of ownership by constraining things like maintenance and repair and, and so on. And if we don't really, you know, kind of formalize this basic property right that we all kind of take for granted, you know, things things can really go sideways for us. Paul offers a few scenarios, some mitigated by current legislation. I like to say it's crazy to think about it, but the technology exists today already that if automakers wanted to prevent you from changing the tire on your own car, they absolutely could. They could put RF chips in manufacturer approved tires that would need to authenticate to the car operating system before the car would drive with a new tire. And if you didn't put on the manufacturer approved tire, um, it would say, oh, I'm sorry, I don't recognize that tire. You know, I can't drive. People think that that's crazy because of course we all think of changing a tire as just, you know, if you own a car, you might have to change the tire or call AAA to change your tire. But if Toyota wanted to say like, no, you can't change your tire, it's way too dangerous. That car could fall off the jack and kill you. And you can't have AAA change your tire because those guys are all criminals and child molesters. You've got to use our authorized service center to change your tire. They could use technology to enforce that business model. And oh, hey, sorry, you know what? We've only got a handful of these guys and you're gonna have to wait three hours before they're gonna get to you on the roadside because they're really busy. Sorry, you have no other choice. That's that's a dystopian future that is technologically is already possible. It doesn't exist partially because of the Massachusetts right to repair law. Um, pre- prevents that type of, of uh, you know system from, from existing. But laws granting access to your car's information don't necessarily apply to your tractors or trucks. In the agricultural sector, you know, where, where, where again, farmers are basically over the barrel to Caterpillar and John Deere to do even minor maintenance. There was a gentleman who testified in Maryland, a farmer, obviously, a, 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 you know, kind of large scale farmer who testified, who said that he spent $150,000 last year in service fees to John Deere for his equipment. This is a huge income stream for them, and it is usurious, and it is monopolistic, and it is antisocial. But the tech, the ability, the technology to do it is already here and, and upon us. So we, if we don't, as a society, stand up and say, nope, um, you know, this is not the type of dystopian future we want to live in. And we've seen this movie before. Literally, we can go to Netflix and watch a world where Archibald Harry Tuttle surreptitiously fixes things because it's right and it keeps order, even though it's expressly against the law. Um, I think of Brazil, I think of Terry Gilliam's Brazil, right? And the the, uh, rebel repairman, air conditioner repairman, right? Kind of (laughs) repelling around and and fixing stuff. Um, 
it's it's kind of that future. And and I just think these laws are absolutely critical to to making sure that that's not the future that we're living in. So perhaps we got a little ahead of ourselves. What exactly is right to repair? The right to repair movement is a global grassroots movement of owners, really, of, of individuals who, who own things, whether those things are tractors and, and combine harvesters or smartphones um, or automobiles, to basically legally assert a right that has really been understood as part of common law for centuries, which is the right of property owners to do what they want with their own property. That once you buy something and it belongs to you, it's yours to control and do with as you wish. You want to buy a brand new car, drive it home and disassemble it on your front yard. um, You can do that. (laughs) It's your car. Um, And uh, similarly with a toaster or a smartphone or anything else, Um, it's your property. It's yours to do with as you want. And of course, repair has always been Um, paramount among those rights. You know, if something breaks and you own it, not only should you be able to fix it, but, you know, historically, it's kind of been on you to fix it one way or the other, either fix it yourself or find someone to fix it for you and and keep it alive and keep it, uh, uh, keep it functioning and extend its useful life for as long as you possibly can. Uh, Obviously, this is something, you know, we talk about in the United States, our our proud history as a, a nation of you know farmers and and uh, upstarts and you know uh, thrifty Yankees and repair was very much a part of that. In fact, there's a great book, um, Repair Revolution. I don't know if you've read it. Um, that by John Wackman and Elizabeth Knight. Both those authors uh, talk about the um, the kind of history of repair in, in in America and elsewhere. This has always been a, a very kind of core right for uh, individuals for property owners. And it's only recently, within the last maybe 30 years, 40 years, that it has started to come under siege. Initially, with the passage of the Digital Millennium Copyright Act in the 1990s. The Digital Millennium Copyright Act, DMCA, passed in 1998, fortunately, was not written in stone. Every three years, the U.S. Library of Congress is tasked with reviewing Section 1201 of the DMCA. In recent years, these exemptions have walked back some strict interpretations of the law and has since provided some straightforward guidance on hacking, stating that good faith security research on a lawfully acquired device with the authorization of the owner operator is exempt if it doesn't violate any applicable law. In 2018, the last review year, breaking encryption in a product in order to repair it was deemed to be legal as well. However, this activity is restricted to restoring the device in question to its original specifications. In April of 2001, the Library of Congress will again review new exemption requests. This is progress, perhaps, but it's not entirely the same as what the right to repair is striving for. Hence the need for continued vigilance. The Digital Millennium Copyright Act, which was a law that was focused on piracy of of music and video games uh, and films, kind of taken on a new life as a all-purpose tool for extending 
basically criminalizing a whole bunch of behaviors that previously were not criminal for makers of any kind of software, because software was ultimately just, you know, included under the DMCA, along with, you know, music and artistic creations, uh, you know, extending control over anything containing software uh, and, and making it uh, basically illegal to tamper with or modify that. That's being kind of broadly interpreted by companies like John Deere and, and others, Apple, to, to basically say, um, you know, you may own the phone, uh, but you're licensing the software and therefore we get to control how you, what you do with that phone. So the tractor example is just crazy. Farmers invest hundreds of thousands of dollars in their tractors and harvesters. If they break down out in the field, the only recourse today is to call a certified technician who often needs only to punch in a code to reactivate the largely computerized machine. But arranging for that technician can take days, and that downtime can cost hundreds or even thousands of dollars in lost production. Mind you that for many years, farmers would just open the hood, take out a wrench, fix something, and then get back to plowing their fields before the rains came. Now, apply that strategy to arranging for a qualified technician to come and fix every piece of technology that we own. That doesn't scale. And so the, the right to repair movement is a, is a global grassroots effort to, to really write into law, like, no, you know, it, um, kind of here that there is a right to repair, that if you own a device, that person, if, if there are basically, um, let's we'll talk about digital right to repair, if there are tools or diagnostic codes, these days, you know, software tools, diagnostic codes, access keys that are needed to service and maintain and, and upkeep that, that device, that thing, um, that the maker of it needs to provide you with it as the owner um, so that you can continue to service it. Um, and, that, and that's really, you know, kind of in a nutshell, what what we're what we're asking for um, is just that basic right of of saying um, it's ours. Uh, we if we you, if there's software on it and we need specific tools to manage and maintain it, then make those please make those available to us as the owners. Don't basically cordon them off for your licensed authorized repair people or your own employees to use, but deny us access to them. Another example is our increasingly computerized automobiles. It used to be that if you got an error code on your dashboard, your only recourse was to take your car to an authorized dealership to interpret that code and get it fixed. You couldn't, for example, just take your computerized car to your local mechanic, since he or she wouldn't be able to access the error codes. The codes are, of course, proprietary. Fortunately, Massachusetts passed a law granting access to key data and that law was enough to affect the entire country. In the case of automobiles, there, there is a de facto, not de jure, but de facto right to repair in the United States, only because the enlightened residents of the state of Massachusetts, where I live in 2012, passed by an overwhelming majority a ballot measure that created that legal right to repair automobiles and basically said that, that dealerships, automakers cannot deny access to the tools, diagnostic tools, error codes, you know, maintenance codes, um, you know, manuals, any documentation to um, their, to the owners of the vehicle or their agents, in other words, independent repair people. Um, so it prevented them from saying, well, if you're not, if you're one of our dealers, 
uh, or you're one of our authorized repair people, you can have all these tools. But if you're not, then you can't. And it basically said, no, you can't do that. You got to make all that data available in a standard format. Um, and it, and the, obviously, they chose the OBD uh, onboard diagnostic port under the dashboard as the medium to transmit that data. So it needs to be available via that port in standard format so that basically anybody can read it. That was a, a watermark, a milestone. Became law in 2013. Massachusetts legislature modified it a little bit before they actually put it onto the books. However, since then, it, that's, it, there's no federal equivalent of that law. So lawmakers in DC did not take up the torch and say, aha, yes, um, you know, uh, laboratory of democracy, Massachusetts is out in front on this, but let's take it and modify it and make it federal. Um, and no other state has passed it, in part because the automakers, uh, subsequent to the passage of that law, um, basically relented and said, okay, well, we'll, we'll sign an, an, a memorandum of understanding to recognize the Massachusetts law in other states as well, rather than having to contend with complying with many different versions of this, um, because there were other versions pending at the time. Um, and so that Massachusetts law has become a de facto national law because the automakers have chosen to recognize it nationally um, as as they can. I mean, it wouldn't make any sense to be like, well, in Massachusetts, you can get this data, but in Connecticut, you can't. Um, and in some sense, with the Internet, it would be impossible as well, because people in Massachusetts would just share the information you know, via the Internet and, and it would be available anyway. And Massachusetts recently updated its law so that third-party telematics companies can also benefit. Massachusetts voters in November, actually, once again, overwhelmingly, in fact, 75% or 77% uh, to 23%, I think, approved an expansion of that um, 2013 law to include vehicle telematics systems. So maintenance or impaired data sent wirelessly via telematics systems as well. Um, and that was another huge uh, milestone for Right to Repair. So huge wins for automobiles, but other industries are not as lucky. In the absence of a federal Right to Repair law, it's up to each individual state to mandate what is possible and what is not. That means there's a lot of fractured laws being proposed, specific to the needs of one state, but not necessarily intended for another. So in the United States, there are this year already 14 different state level right to repair laws being proposed. So in committee, um, being considered, being debated. We expect that there are going to be more than 20 again this year. There were more than 20 last year, 20 states that had these laws. Um, and I think there were something like 18 in, in 2019. Um, and then, you know, obviously COVID knocked everything kind of off. <laughs> Everything went off on the shelf with COVID as, as legislatures were struggling to just deal with responding to the pandemic. Um, so when you look across those states, there, there are a real variety of flavors that these right to repair laws take. Um, some of them, notably in Hawaii, a si single out in either a bill or part of, you know, either a standalone bill or part of another bill, uh, medical device repair um, as as one of the things that they are um, uh, you know legislating, um, others are, are specific to. There are a bunch like Nebraska and Florida, uh, South Carolina that are specific just to uh, agricultural equipment. So you know they've kind of carved out. You know, let's forget about cell phones, and smartphones. So let's just focus on the farmers. They're having a lot of trouble with these Caterpillar and John Deere heavy equipment. So they're just focused on agricultural piece of it. Um, and then there are others that are more omnibus um, that 
are, um, you know, digital devices uh, could be conceivably um, smart home devices, smartphones, and, and could be medical devices, potentially, depending on the wording of the law. Consider that medical devices are life critical, certainly. And for years, the FDA made it so that hospitals and other organizations could not even update their underlying operating systems with the latest patch. Otherwise, the device would be out of compliance. The FDA has since changed that rule, but we're still a long way from providing the type of information that would be useful with right to repair. In Massachusetts, where I am, the legislation that was being considered last year carved out medical devices. So medical devices were explicitly not, were were exempted from the device for the right to repair law. Um, And so I think there are probably states where, where that is the case as well. Um, and that's not because of the need, because I think the need is great. Um, I think it's more just um, bowing to the reality that in a state like Massachusetts, uh, medical device makers have a tremendous amount of political clout and are, are very well uh, employ a lot of people and are very well thought of in uh, Beacon Hill. And, um, you know, it's, you got to pick your pick your battles. And uh, I think the people backing Right to Repair Massachusetts just said, if we can get these people off our back and carve it out, then we'll do that. <laughs> um, so, so there is a great need there, but not every right to repair bill goes there. Often when there's a limitation, smart people will get really creative. Given the control the medical device manufacturers have, and the FDA as well, when COVID hit, something had to give. There was a notable shortage of ventilators Or rather, there were ventilators, but not all of them were up and operational. That's when something called Project Biomed came into being. If you remember back in the spring with the the first wave of the COVID pandemic, which we thought was a disaster at the time, but in fact has turned out to be merely a, a swell in the actual storm. One thing that was happening back in the spring was there was a a real shortage of uh, ventilators and uh, respiratory uh, uh, equipment for hospitals. They were overwhelmed with patients. They didn't have enough of these uh, ventilators, respirators uh, to keep people who are very ill with COVID alive. And one of the problems that emerged was that um, many of these uh, ventilators, you know, the hospitals themselves didn't have access to the information they needed to repair these these ventilators and that the technicians, the authorized technicians for the device maker were obviously, there weren't that many of them. They were in very short supply and they were being overwhelmed as, as hospitals pulled these things out of storage and tried to get them up and running. And they weren't, you know, I mean, you can imagine that takes some doing and there just weren't enough of them. I mean, it's one of the things about closed repair ecosystems OEMs talk about it in terms of like, well, it'll be very high quality and our technicians are expertly trained, but often it's really about scarcity. You know, it's they maintain only enough as they think they need. And in crises like this, you very quickly realize that there aren't nearly enough. So this idea of having only key technicians service and repair, that works in normal times. But when there's a crisis, the model falls apart quickly. And people's lives are at stake. And so Kyle Weens and the folks at iFixit um, and some other groups basically got together and decided to crowdsource this problem. And what you don't know is that there's kind of an underground of people who do, um, of medical technicians who service and repair this equipment, who 
for years have been sharing things like schematics and uh, service manuals <clears throat> and 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 other tools, software tools in, you know, uh, you, news groups and user groups, kind of, you know, uh, closed groups uh, of technicians. And, but it was very, you know, it was kind of, hey, does anybody have the service manual for this particular, you know, respirator by, you know, whatever, the manufacturer. And so, yeah, I've got that. And, you know, I'll, I'll message you directly. It was all very kind of informal and, and also not, not, you know, indexable, not easily navigable. Um, so basically, you had a couple techs who, who kind of passed Kyle the, the contents of their hard drive, basically, like, I've got tons of stuff, here it is, um, and I know where to get other stuff. And Kyle and the folks from iFixit, as well as a cadre of, um, of librarians and um, archivists um, who, are, who are really specialized in cataloging uh, information, um, weren't technology people, were actually literally, you know, librarians and, and archivists by training, but they all kind of came together online and stood up Project Biomed, which is the largest, now the largest repository of uh, service manuals and uh, software and other information about medical devices, not just respirators. Respirators was a, was a kind of impetus for this, but of course, when they got going, it was, it was all manner of medical devices. And that, prior to that, the biggest site had been this, this site that a guy in Africa maintains. I can't remember the name of the site. It was like one guy and he had this website and he had, you know, he had a lot, he had a lot on it, um, you know, for this particular purpose. But um, I tried to interview him actually, and he, he just, he did not want his name. He did not want any visibility at all. And, and so they, they stood it up. And I think ordinarily that would have been, that would have gotten them some, some, some lawyer letters uh, from medical device manufacturers, you know, um, the Phillips of the world and, and Siemens and so on. Uh, but in the context of a COVID pandemic, uh, I think they rightly said, you know, this isn't a, f a fight we want to have. So the right to repair goes beyond just people being able to fix a cracked iPhone screen. It can affect whether people live or die. It's a basic hacker idea that information should be free and accessible so more people can learn about it and perhaps improve these systems. You hear this at, at hearings on right to repair laws, you know, the service manuals and, and schematics, you know, are not not copyrightable material. You know, this is not intellectual property. It's just a schematic for how your, you know, how your circuit boards are put together. Um, it's just a list of parts and part numbers. You know, um, it's it's not, you know, it's not differentiating you from <laughs> your your creation. So yeah, so that's what happened. And um, you know, again, I think it was a it was one of the many kind of blessings in some ways of of COVID that it really highlighted that issue that the, that repair is not just about, you know, again, uh, you or I fixing a, a cracked iPhone screen, um, that it is literally a life and death matter. Um, you know, hospitals and doctor's offices need to be able to service this equipment sometimes urgently. The best way to make sure that that happens and, and, and uh, effectively is, of course, to have a large and diverse ecosystem of people out there who have the knowledge and information to be able to service these devices. The way to not have it happen is to have that knowledge be locked away, have a very small uh, overtaxed population of you know, authorized repair people who may or may not be able to get to you in time. Um, so it was a good, I think it was a good use case for what Right to Repair is all about. As a result of Project Biomed, there may now be some lasting good as a result. 
And I know that there has been some federal legislation proposed as well about um, medical repair and access to repair information for hospitals and healthcare providers. Um, because the reality is that hospitals, and I live in you know Boston, where obviously we have many, many hospitals. Um, you know what you've seen in the last thirty or forty years is hospitals uh, go from having people who they employed, who they kept on staff just to do, uh, you know, servicing and maintenance of their medical equipment, which again, you know, going back 40 years was mostly mechanical to products that are like the John Deere tractors are locked down with digital rights management software, you know, OEMs who really are in a position to say, either ship your 12,000 pound MRI machine to Germany and we'll take care of it here or pay us, you know, fill in the blank for our technician to come, you know, with the tool to punch in the access code to be able to actually service it. And we're going to, we're going to tell you what, what we're going to charge. You know, this is no longer something that you have any negotiating power over. And so it's a big problem for hospitals. It's become a very big, uh, either the servicing itself, or in some cases, they're just charging exorbitant fees for access to the service manuals. You know, the service manuals are online and subscription-based. You know, subscription prices have been going up and up and up and up as this is just monopolistic behavior, right? Um, we can charge whatever we want and you'll pay it. So um, that's been a big problem. And it's a big, it's a cost center for hospitals. They don't talk a lot about it, but it is. And it's something that, you know, again, a, a, a robust uh, right to repair would um, would take care of. So there's a need for smart technology people to fight this fight. And I remember Paul once leaving Black Hat early so he could fly home and testify before a town council. Paul can't fly all over the country and testify when needed. So he started an organization called SecuRepairs.org that's designed with a goal of having InfoSec people in all 50 states who can volunteer their time to educate politicians in their area and help shape constructive legislation. So Secure Repairs I founded in 2019. It is a group, volunteer group of around 200 information technology and information security professionals who support a digital right to repair. The idea behind the group was basically I was talking with Nathan Proctor, who's the head of U.S. Perg's National Right to Repair campaign, um, and he invited me to a couple hearings, uh, one in New Hampshire, one in Massachusetts, of right to repair laws. And I basically realized pretty quickly that you know cybersecurity was kind of the point of the spear for groups like the you know CTA and AHAM, the American Home Appliance Manufacturers, lobbyists, and, you know, the various kind of industry and technology lobbies that were doing battle to defeat right to repair laws. I want to restate the verb educate. With InfoSec, there's a lot of fear, uncertainty, and doubt, or FUD, within the government. And sometimes this ignorance of what's possible and what's not can be a powerful weapon used by lobbyists against very good legislation. We're using cybersecurity as a way to basically scare lawmakers um, away from right to repair laws. Um, you know, cyber is kind of a four-letter word in the in you know in most legislatures. Um, the folks considering these are generally not technologists by training, and if you just merely mention the word hacker, they're going to run away screaming. So they they found that to be a very effective argument to use. 
um, this these laws by providing you know diagnostic data, diagnostic codes. You know, you're opening the doors to hackers. They're going to be able to hack into your phone and your car and your smart home, and we don't want to do that. And I, because I've been writing about cybersecurity for 20 years, recognized that this was a just the same types of fallacious arguments that we heard Microsoft using back in the in the 1990s. You know, kind of security through obscurity. If we just don't let security researchers look at our software, then we won't have any problems. And that there was no, you know, there was no there there. That these were empty arguments, and that we and and most security professionals recognize that they were empty arguments, but the security community as a whole didn't have a voice, right? We, you know, you might be able to get somebody with kind of a technical background to testify in favor of right to repair laws, but there was no, there was no face or voice for the infosec community to say these are these are empty arguments there is no cyber risk to repair and in fact you know sharing this information making this information available in all likelihood will increase the cybersecurity of this internet of things that we're all that we're all entering into so paul with his reporter's sense for a good story sprang into action so i basically was like well you know, I can run a website and I've got a pretty good Rolodex of information security people uh, in my LinkedIn and and on my, you know, on my uh, smartphone that I can that I can call up and, and get them to um, to sign on to this. And so that's what I did. And um, we've been I really looked at it. And the other the other problem was that these hearings, again, 20 pieces of legislation this year or next last year and probably similar this year, we got hearings happening all over the country. And so I, I want I almost looked at it as like a speaker bureau, like, wouldn't it be great if I could find an InfoSec pro in Montana or, you know, Washington State or Connecticut who could, you know, take an afternoon off, just go in and sit in the hearing rooms pre-COVID, sit in the hearing room and just be a face there and say, listen, here are my bona fides. There's nothing, you know, that what these lobbyists and, and PR people are telling you is just completely false. And in a short amount of time, Paul attracted InfoSec's A-list of rock star talent to start going to bat for this effort across the country. Um, and so that's that's kind of how it worked. And, and, and amazingly, because, you know, who knows when you start something, whether it I mean, we've seen that happen. You know, Tara Wheeler gave amazing testimony in Washington State a year ago this month um, uh, about uh, in favor of their right to repair law uh, down in Washington, D.C. FTC had a nix the fix um, uh, seminar, um, which I think is maybe the only good thing that happened during the Trump administration. Um, <laughs> we had Gary McGraw, who was able to sit on a panel there um, and, and really kind of, you know, um, be a voice of reason uh, around um, uh, repair in, in that context. Um, Bruce Schneier and, and others who have who we've been able to get to talk to legislature le- legislators, um, brief them on cybersecurity, and it, it has just been um, it's been great. So um, so that's it. And, and this year we're you know we're ramping up again. Um, I testified at hearings in Washington State last week and Maryland this week. Uh, in favor of right to repair laws there. And we've gotten some of our members, Richard Forno, uh, from who's at the University of Maryland, um, wrote a really great, uh, submitted really great testimony uh, in, in the Maryland case. Um, so, you know, we're just trying to, um, to get the word out. We want to encourage other information security professionals to join us um, and to, you know, kind of uh, pick up the pick up the flag and and carry forward the charge of right to repair. 
You don't have to be an InfoSec A-list. Anyone can volunteer. Go to Secure Repairs. So that's S-E-C-U-R-E-P-A-I-R-S. So I kind of Secure Repairs. I merge that R-E in the middle. So SecureRepairs.org. Um, and you, there's like a link to join us and you can register. Um, you don't have to list your name. Many of the people who are supporters of ours are not listed on the site because they work for companies that, you know, might uh, do work with some of the companies who are on the other side of this argument, but they're, they're supporters anyway. And, and, um, and, uh, you know, often can help us out with, um, expert, you know, input or, you know, helping us to understand certain issues. So there are many ways to be involved, even if you're not a public face of secure repairs. So go to the website, click on join us. Uh, add your name, let us know if you want to be publicly listed or not. Um, and, um, and we'll basically reach out to you. Um, you know, again, often there are hearings happening around you that you, that it's good to be aware of. And, and, and if there are, we'll say, Hey, you know, there's a hearing in your state it's next week. You know, do you think you could show up or do you think you could go to this website and just submit written testimony or something like that? And so if you're an infosec or infotech professional, um, and, uh, and this sounds like the type of thing that matters to you, uh, go to securerepairs.org and join us. I'd like to thank Paul Roberts for this episode. You can check out Paul's infosec reporting at the securityledger.com and subscribe to his podcast of the same name on Spotify and other podcast platforms. Hey, before you go, Remember to subscribe to The Hacker Mind and never miss another episode. You can find us on Google, Apple, Amazon, Spotify, so many different platforms. Check us out. This podcast is brought to you commercial-free by For All Secure. For The Hacker Mind, I remain yet another Archibald Harry Tuttle wannabe, Robert Famosa.